Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. The morning after the first day of Donald Trump's second impeachment trial. And I have to say that um, it was a lot more interesting than I expected that was going to be the the dramatic contrast between the presentation by the House managers and the, uh, how do you even describe the 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 attorneys that represented uh, Donald Trump. Uh, I put out my newsletter this morning. Um, if you uh, if you subscribe, actually we we, we gave it to everybody free. Uh, the headline is the GOP's jury nullification. A pretty good indication from yesterday that that the the jury is basically rigged. It's fixed. They they've made up their minds. Uh, they're not going to be swayed by the evidence or by the arguments, and that's jury nullification. Uh, but. The first thing I did was saying, look, if you have not watched, if you have not watched that 13 minute dramatic video that was presented, uh, just 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 take some time. I mean, you know, when you're done with your breakfast, just watch it. It, it is it is disturbing. Um, it is emotional. It's incredibly powerful, but it's important. It's intended to be because, as you know, the Republicans and the Trump world is trying to memory hole what happened a little bit more than a month ago. And uh, it was uh, it was an emotional high point of yesterday, followed by followed by the eminent uh, law firm of Ramble, Blather and Shout, uh, LLC. Um, and of course, uh, the, the, the first lawyer that stood up after Jamie Raskin delivered that amazingly emotional uh, speech was Bruce Castor, who I said this morning, I, I wrote that, you know, mere words and even video clips can't capture how weird it was because, I mean, he's meandering, he's dithering, he's digressing, he's wandering into these corners of incoherence. And, and you're thinking, OK, sooner or later, he's going to get to the point, any point. But uh, the wash, the folks at The Washington Post put together a little montage, a little bit more than a minute of uh, Bruce Castor's, uh, I would say, weirdest moments. And there there were many. So um, in, in case in case you missed it. Uh, here's the the legal stylings of the lawyer for the president of the United States, the guy that he chose to put in front of the United States Senate during an impeachment trial, Bruce Castor. I'll be quite frank with you. We changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. We are generally a social people. We enjoy being around one another. Senators of the United States, they're not ordinary people. And boy, this is a diverse group. We still know what records are, right? On the thing you put the needle down on and you play it. I worked in this building 40 years ago. I got lost then, and I still do. I represent the great state of fill-in-the-blank. I saw a headline, Representative so-and-so seeks to walk back comments about I forget what it was, something that bothered her. I don't want to steal the thunder from the other lawyers, but Nebraska, you're going to hear, is quite a judicial thinking place. If the individual state legislatures didn't adopt the Constitution, we would not have it. The floodgates will open. As I was going to say originally, it will release the whirlwind. But I subsequently learned since I got here that that particular phrase has already been taken. So I figured I better change it to floodgates. <laughs> Bill Crystal, neither you or I are lawyers, but I got to say that was that was not Clarence Darrow, right? This is not going to be shown in law schools as a this is what you should do sort of thing. It was it was I mean, it's, it is kind of amazing. And uh, I am struck that there's uh, Byron York, a major Trump apologist, 
uh, I think tweeted last night or this morning, well, you know, he's no longer president, so he, it's unfair he doesn't have the White House counsel's office. The, the House of Representatives has a big legal staff and able to prepare sophisticated arguments, and he just is this poor guy who has to go find a, you know, whatever lawyer he can get, I guess. But of course, he did really? steal, as someone pointed out, was it one of our colleagues maybe pointed this out? Maybe you did, I don't know, Amanda or someone, that, you know, he, he did sort of grift off $200 million from his supporters over the yes. last three months. So presumably, uh, if a decent lawyer had wanted to represent him, uh, Trump would have uh, had the money to hire to pay for that person, even at the uh, even at the high rates of the, the best firms. And that one, it is it is interesting, isn't it, though, that no one wanted to represent him. I mean, I mean, it does say it's not like there's a shortage of conservative Federalist Society, Republican people who served in Republican administrations, people who served in the Trump administration. I mean, in the way government works, every agency has a general counsel. Leave aside the White House counsel's office. Every agency has a general counsel. The Justice Department has many senior officials. Uh, they worked for Donald Trump. But they are they do they want to get away from him as quickly as possible. And so none of them he's got a former whatever caster is, what a former Pennsylvania uh, district attorney, I suppose, yeah. in Montgomery County, and he's got this other fellow uh, who shattered a lot. Yeah, no, I mean David Shane, I think, was you know compensating for the marathon of ineptitude by by speaking very loudly. And, and and then, of course, for some reason, you know, mangling Longfellow's Building of the Ship, which is one of my favorite poems, and he reads it, and it's like, what what, what was that about? So, no, your, your, your point is, is really interesting, because you think about how many good lawyers there are, how many in the Republican circles, conservative circles, um, and, and look, I mean, there are people who make a living chasing ambulances, and <laughs> Donald Trump is a political ambulance. So, it, 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 yeah, he couldn't find anyone better than this with all of that money. And this is like the ultimate marketing tool. You know that, you know, whatever happens, you're going to be on national television. People are going to be talking about you. And he ends up with these two doofuses. And look, this is not just, you know, partisan uh, cheap shots here, although we can make some partisan cheap shots. We're, we're not above that. Uh, but th this seemed to unite a bitterly divided country um, almost immediately. In fact, I think while Castor was still speaking, Alan Dershowitz, who is a, uh, I, I, th I think, is it fair to say that he's a Trump turd polisher? Um, yeah. He's one of your favorite phrases. Oh, oh, okay, yeah. Le okay, legal turd polisher. Uh, you know, um, um, uh, went on Newsmax, and they're saying, "So, what do you think of the president's lawyer?" <laughs> this is what Alan Dershowitz had to say. Uh, what are you What are you making of Bruce Castor's argument so far? Where is he heading with this? There is no argument. I have no idea what he's doing. <clears throat> I have no idea. Why he's saying what he's saying? You know, he's introducing himself. I'm a nice guy. I like my senators. I know my senators. Senators are great people. Come on. The American people are entitled to an argument, a constitutional yeah. argument. I suspect it will be forthcoming from David Schoen. Uh, but this just after all kinds of very strong presentations on the part of the House managers with the videotapes, and the emotional speech by Congressman Raskin, my former student, mm -hmm. I, you know, you get up there and you respond. Uh, we know that hard cases make bad law. I probably would have started with that. This is a hard case. This is an emotional case. He did say, and I think very appropriately, that everybody wants to take revenge when they see a horrible event that took place at the Capitol. But then he went off. I just don't, don't understand it. Yeah. Uh, maybe he'll bring it home. But right now, 
it does not appear to me to be effective advocacy. He may know the senators better than I do. Maybe they want to be buttered up. Maybe they want to be told what great people they are and how he knows two senators. But, mm-hmm. you know, boy, it's not the kind of argument I would have made, I have to tell you that. Yeah, you could just... You don't even know what need to listen to the sound of that. Just watch Dershowitz's face. And uh, I would say that Dershowitz, on the other hand, probably resents not having been asked to make the argument. This would have been a moment of glory for him, and he's a total publicity hound. So um, maybe there's some personal. He's trying to show that he would have done a better job than Castor, and maybe suggesting to Trump that it's not too late to get Allen to do the do the arguments tomorrow. You know, this is interesting because uh, Trump Trump is uh, reportedly enraged by the performance. You kind of wonder whether they're going to uh, come back today. I mean, would, you know, would it be totally shocking if some if two other lawyers walked into the Senate chambers today? I mean, there was that one moment where Castor acknowledged that. Joe Biden had won the election, which was like, oh, you're not supposed to say that. Does anybody know? I mean, you can imagine. I would have loved to have seen a live feed of Trump watching this in Mar-a-Lago. Yeah, I, felt like they, I felt like they should have put him back on Twitter for a few hours just so oh, you could see yeah. him. Can we just have like a little, yeah, just a little Twitter comeback? And of course, you know, what really made this even more striking, which kind of highlighted that the, the gap was that this this clown show came on right after Jamie Raskin made this remarkable presentation. So he presented that this 13-minute video, which you have to go and watch, and then talked about his own experience. And this is really, Bill, this is a remarkable experience. I mean, his his son committed suicide, lost his son over the holidays. The day before, he had buried his son, and he came to the Capitol with his daughter. I mean, this guy has been through a lot. And and it, it you, you could tell from his presentation, this was, this was Jamie Raskin yesterday. I told my daughter, Tabitha, who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was, and I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol again. You know, there's a good piece in, in The Atlantic by David Graham that talks about why that speech resonated with so many. Um, is because, because they shared his sense that uh, what happened on January 6th wasn't just a crime, it was an act of sacrilege. So that was that was a high point of it. And the I guess I want, want to get to, you know, the result. I mean, obviously, the bad lawyering is not the worst thing that happened yesterday. I mean, the fact that 44 Republican senators voted to throw out this case is, is much, much, much worse. And I think we got to focus on that. Um, but I guess the only surprise was the fact that at least one senator, uh, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, was actually listening to these arguments. I don't know that the other ones were. Uh, they made their minds up. Was listening to this argument and changed his mind. And this this is what this is what uh, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy said yesterday. I said I'd be an impartial juror. Anyone listening to those arguments, the House managers were focused. They were organized. They relied upon both precedent, the Constitution, and legal scholars. They made a compelling argument. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. Now, if I'm an impartial juror, and one side's doing a great job, and the other side's doing a terrible job on the issue at hand, as an impartial juror, I'm going to vote for the side that did the good job. 
Hmm. Hmm. So th- there actually is a juror who was paying attention. So Bill Crystal, though, um, so the vote was 56 to 44. If you want to look at the glass half full, it's established a very clear precedent that you can, in fact, have an impeachment trial for an ex-president. But those 44 votes make it extremely, extremely unlikely that uh, Republicans will come up with enough votes to actually convict the president. Um, your thoughts? Unless there are more Bill Cassidy's out there who have been sort of keeping quiet and uh, Cassidy had voted that he had thought the trial was unconstitutional and now he's changed his mind. Other Republican senators could think the following, and certainly the House managers will make this case, and I think it's a good case. Look, whatever you thought about the jurisdictional question, the question of whether it was you could try, it was, it was uh, legal to try an ex-president, someone who's no longer in office, that's been resolved. Now you have to judge the case on the merits. I was trying to think of a good analogy to this last night, and I'm sure they've thought of better ones, hopefully, but it'll be sort of like, uh, um, I don't know, the first thing that's argued in a trial is whether the statute of limitations has run on a certain Correct. crime, right? Something yeah. happened five years ago. Is it is the statute three years or seven years? You know, there are endless, obviously, you know, complications of that sort in, in trials sometimes. Ambiguity in the statutes, two different statutes. And uh, once that's resolved, however, if you're a judge or a juror, you have to get to the merits. I mean, you may have thought the statute of limitations had run, but you don't vote. You can't judge someone innocent if, in fact, it has been found that the trial is now moving ahead appropriately. Will Republican senators, will any Republican senators, will, will a few Republican senators, will more than a few take that attitude? That's, I think, a huge question. I think the House managers will hammer, try to hammer this today that you, you, know, you, you need now to make a judgment on the merits. Uh, and the merits are pretty overwhelming. And Cassidy does show that maybe there is a sort of lurking in the Republican conference. There are some senators who have been keeping pretty quiet, but are open to doing the right thing. Cassidy, I believe, was reelected this year. So he's got six years till he votes, faces the voters again, if he chooses to. There are other senators in similar positions. There are senators retiring. Uh, I don't, you know, it's very unlikely that uh, the final vote will be very different from 56-44 or 55-45 mm-hmm. or something like that. But it's not totally impossible that the dynamics of the next uh, two or three days, you know, lead to more Bill Cassidy's. Yeah, 56 to 44. You know, here, here's a completely irrelevant um, piece of trivia about this. Um, I was really struck by this, that the vote of 56 to 44 exactly mirrors public sentiment, at least according mm. to the poll that came out yesterday. The CBS polls found that 56% of Americans think that Donald Trump should be convicted. So weirdly enough, the non-representative body of the of the Senate is right now representing public opinion. Uh, there are some reports, I think Bloomberg is reporting, that Mitch McConnell is open to the possibility of voting to convict. Um, I, I personally reacted to that by kind of snorting and saying, okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going there again, but it is interesting that he's still doing that. He's still kind of floating at it. It's a vote of conscience, it's a vote of conscience. You know, I'm, you know, this, as you pointed out, this procedural question has now been settled. You can vote to say that it's unconstitutional, but now that that's been resolved and we have the precedent set, you know, um, but I, I think those chances are slim and none. Yeah, they are. But I mean, you and I discussed this, I think, last week. Yeah. McConnell did float this notion, yeah. you know, right after January 6th, uh, that he was open-minded on this. I think he wanted to see, I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was just, you know, indicating something and is going to end up where he always ends up. But I kind of wonder if he wasn't trying to see if the, how many other senators might join him in saying, I have an open mind. The silence was pretty deafening. And I, I McConnell's pretty clever and careful. And he, you might think he would privately sound this out before voting it publicly, but it's also true that 
this is such a delicate thing. Maybe you just try the trial balloon and see what happens. And maybe he's letting people sort of know what he's, what Bloomberg says he's letting people know to see if there are other Cassidy's uh, hiding there. You can get to 17 Republicans if you just go through the list, add up the ones who, the six that, let's just say for now, have voted uh, against the party, add up a couple of, a few retirees, a few uh, who aren't up for six years, and presumably the next time they face the voters, this will be long, long in the past. A few others who are um, don't care or in super safe seats or re- genuine institutionalists. And, you know, it's a little bit of a stretch, honestly, but you could get to 17 votes and McConnell could could be could is the one guy who could get you there, I would say. Yeah, he's the, McConnell's he's, the guy who yeah. could talk to people like Cassidy, who no one much has ever thought much about or heard of much. John Hoven from North Dakota, I would say, would be in this category. Mm-hmm. People who just might be, you know, be keeping quiet, but are decent people and and just can't really stand the idea of, of voting to acquit when he's so clearly guilty. So, I, you know, I don't think it's a likely thing. I don't even think it's no. a one in three or one in four chance. But, I, you know, it's maybe it's one in eight, one in ten. I don't know. See, what I thought was interesting about how awful the attorneys were yesterday was it really kind of highlighted the way that 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 both Trump and Senate Republicans are when they should be rising to this historic moment are in fact trying to trivialize it, that they're trying to shrink the the moment. Remember, we had that quote from uh, Lindsey Graham the other day was I have to sit through this crap and everything really. Um, it, look, he, this is this is this is one of the most extraordinary moments in American history, where the president of the United States, using his power, tried to overturn a free and fair election. I mean, I, it, as many times as I say it, and you know, and watching that video again, it's like, do we realize the magnitude of this, the danger of this, how unthinkable it is? It happened a month ago, and I'm not sure that most, I'm not sure that everyone has completely internalized what we saw here. You know, the this insurrection, this violent, vicious uh, mob trying to attack the Congress to stop them from certifying a presidential election. And Donald Trump, during this whole period, sitting in the White House, not doing anything, on the phone, trying to get uh, more senators to delay the vote. He clearly wanted this mob to help him in his efforts to overturn the election and to hold on to power. It is breathtaking. And to watch the the Republicans blow it off and trivialize it. You know, I, I don't know whether you, you saw this dude, Mike Lee from Utah, what he said no. yesterday. Okay. So okay, Mike, Mike Lee's a smart guy, right? I mean, he, he used to be one of the more serious constitutional thinkers in the United States Senate. He, he says, ah, oh, you know... Trump, Trump should get a, you should give him a mulligan for this. What? It, it, there's something about this this era that just makes people smaller and dumber. No, I very you much know, agree. And mulligan. I, and I'm struck, as you say, whether it's Lee or Rubio or Lindsey Graham, they're not defending Trump exactly. No, they're not. It's pretty hard to do. It's just a trivializing. We got to move on. We, we're, you know, this is wasting time where we could be doing God knows what. I mean, um, not that they've been debating any substance anyway. Uh, and you know, Lindsey Graham, when he was still chairing the Senate Judiciary Committee, put off the hearings to confirm the new Attorney General. So it's not as if yeah. they're rushing to do work, you know. But I agree that their attitude. Well, this is what happens, right? If you have a bad argument to make in an important matter. 
you trivialize it. That's sort of what happens in human life generally. You just make, ah, oh, come on, this doesn't really matter. We don't have to address this, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I guess they can all get away with this, maybe. And you know, most likely outcome is a whole bunch of them vote to acquit, forty-two of them or something, and uh, maybe forty-four, forty-five, and they join the, you know, all the people in the House who voted not to impeach, mm-hmm. and that's the bulk of the Republican Party, the huge bulk. Then that case would be what eighty-five, ninety percent, and. Um, and that will be that, and we move on. I mean, they they do have a bit of an opportunity to really make a difference here, and uh, you know, makes give the Republican Party greater hope of changing course, make this really an inflection point. But and and privately, they do all kind of grumble about the fact that a bunch of Trumpists are likely to win primaries next year unless there is an inflection point. So here they have the inflection point. And they're not taking it. I mean, I guess for me, that's what's really striking. And if they don't choose not to take it, it tells you a lot. I do think oh, it, it, yeah. it tells you a lot about their obligate, their failure to do their duty in this case. But it also tells you a lot about how they're going to behave over the next couple of years. No, I, I think that as an analysis of, of of the damage they will do to the party, that's that's absolutely correct. But but you know, I, and maybe it's naive to think at some point they might want to put the country over the party, right? Because Hey, no, think about the impact of, of a conviction at this point, what it would mean. Um, and I know they're saying, oh, you know, we're wasting our time. He's out of office. No, actually, the guilty verdict, which by definition would have to be overwhelmingly bipartisan, right, would mm-hmm. be this extraordinary historic statement. I mean, it would be a real recommitment to the sacredness of a peaceful transfer of power. I mean, it would make it absolutely unambiguous that we as a country, both Republicans and Democrats, stand against the use and threat of violence to overturn an election, because this is going to set a precedent one way or another, right? If they were to vote to convict, this would be a real marker that there are some things that you do not ever do. No one should ever attempt to lie about an election, overturn an election, engage in these kinds of tactics. It would be... Um, a very, very dramatic statement. And I think that it would that it would have the the impact of deterrence, because, I mean, there's two aspects of this. You know, number one, you want to hold Donald Trump accountable for what he did in the past. But you also want to deter the Donald Trumps of the future, including Donald Trump himself of the future. Do not ever think of doing this again. You know, the next the next wannabe anti-democratic fascist uh, out there, you know, at least you have this marker that that this is, we are going to take this seriously and both Democrats and Republicans will stand against you. But right now, it looks like we're going to get a result that Donald Trump is going to spin his exoneration. And I think that's I think that's dangerous. I mean, I wrote this morning. I, I think that if they exonerate him, this is going to happen again. This this will happen again and probably sooner than we think. And they refuse to uh, impeach or the Republicans vote for impeachment or conviction in uh, a year ago uh, when he was still in office. So, I mean, they and, and, and gave him a chance to win re-election and uh, um, uh, did, didn't do anything. More, more evidence has come out on the on the Ukraine situation with Giuliani's phone calls. Yes, like strengthening the, the the pretty strong case already. I would say for conviction there. So you're right. I mean, the lesson will be: do what you want to to, to get foreign governments to intervene in our elections, lie uh, and incite uh, lie about something so fundamental as election integrity in the U.S. Uh, cast doubt on the whole democratic process, incite your followers to. Uh, to riot. Also, incidentally, try to get your vice president to act illegally and unconstitutionally by not not counting the returns accurately and by overturning the returns and try and pressure Georgia Secretary of State and so forth to act illegally. Do all of that, and you walk away 
paying no price. I mean, that is yeah. pretty astonishing. And I, I very much agree. It goes way beyond the health of the party. I, you know, I, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I, that's not a good reason to do it. I, I mean, I think it would be mm-hmm. important if they did it. it. Might be a bit of an indicator for a Republican Party rethinking. Certainly, if they don't do it, you've got a party that's basically gone along with everything Trump wanted in office. And then they, some people say, well, but wait till he leaves. You know, then they're really going right. to be They're intimidated by him as he's president. He is not president anymore. And they either remain intimidated by him or they just believe it, you know, themselves, or they want this to be the legacy or they're scared of the voters and, and they feel they can continue to straddle everything. But um, I think it, that is feeding the crocodile, sadly. I mean, if they don't repudiate him now, I, th- I see very little chance that things don't get more extreme, not less extreme. Uh, on the Republicans. Well, I, 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 I completely agree. And, you know, also, I, I think this is the this is the price you pay for the last four years of tolerating all of his lies and everything. I wrote a piece the other day for MSNBC Daily, just reminding people about, you know, all the conspiracy theories, all the lies he's told and told, you know, I mean, starting from birtherism and Ted Cruz's dad being involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy and Joe Scarborough murdering an intern one after another, or, you know, the uh, the Osama bin Laden. I mean, this guy's been doing this for so long now, and Republicans have gotten used to. Unfortunately, it's it's like they're you know the 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 analogy I use is like all of their antibodies against crazy and against deceit have been destroyed. So they've gotten so used to it. Okay, yeah, the president he's lying again. He's lying again. The president of the United States lied about an election and tried to overturn it, and still they they've lost the ability to go. Wait, okay, wait. There's 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 this massive red line here. We take an oath. We act. What 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 does the you wrote about this uh, about a maybe two years ago? You know, reminding people you take an oath. There's a specific thing. You're not just sitting there. You know, on cable news. You're not just doing a podcast. You've taken a freaking oath to uphold the Constitution. Maybe people ought to be reminded about what exactly does that oath mean, and how does that oath change your responsibility from just the average person? Right. Yeah, but they don't. I mean, it is striking that they don't even begin to think that way. And I right, don't, don't. want to romanticize the past. A lot of, yeah. a lot of corrupt members of Congress and so forth, but uh, and a lot who did, did pretty uh, bad things. But yeah, I do think there was more of a sense of responsibility of being a representative, of being a leader, uh, of not just looking at the latest poll in their district or thinking about their primary challenge. And there was a sense that, you know, Burke articulated, what, 250 years ago, of, you know, you as a representative, you owe your constituents more than just following their prejudices. You owe them your, your judgment. And, and in this case, the oath is such a central part of that judgment of, of what's good for the country. Um, it should be a central part of it. So, yeah, no, it's depressing. And it's depressing about the Republican Party. It's sort of depressing about the country. I mean, it's yeah. obviously uh, the, uh, Jonathan Last just had a, had a piece yesterday. You know, saying he was uh, bearish or what he's selling away. You know, he's going short on America. But the true argument there was that well, if the Republican Party is so irresponsible, it's one of the two major parties. It's kind of hard to be too optimistic about America in general. Obviously, you could root for the Republicans not to be in power for a long time and work for that, but you can't count on that. So, if one of our two major parties is at this level of irresponsibility, yeah. we're in bad shape. I just wrote a little thing for. Jonathan, I'm not sure. We'll see if he uses it. Um, sort of vaguely trying to push back a little bit, saying, "Well, here's here's what might, might make what what might make one hopeful." But um, it, it, I can't say honestly that I'm uh, wildly optimistic at this point about the future of the Republican Party for the reason you said. It's partly the 
them just being wrong on this and not willing to face it. But, you know, in a funny way, I respect them more if they just said, look, I, I've looked at this. He said some stupid things, but I just don't think ultimately the the impeachment managers have met the standard of proving with sufficient clarity mm-hmm. and uh, insufficient doubt that he is guilty, that he deserves to be guilty. So I'm just going to say it's a close call and I'm going to say that we should just not acquit him of this charge. I mean, that would at least, I think it would be disingenuous, but it would be, you know, it would be sort of a straightforward account that a juror might give at a trial. And even if you think someone's guilty, you can't quite get there to vote to convict. But this kind of belittling of the whole process, that for me is, this is a constitutional yes. process. They swore right. a separate oath to be impartial jurors when they were sworn in as a court of impeachment. Uh, they deserve, they owe the country at least to take it seriously. And instead they're sitting at their desks, you know, doodling and reading newspapers and trying to avoid watching that video, which brings home what actually happened, actually happened, not a, Mm -hmm. you know, made up thing, a fanciful parade of, what do they call it in law, you know, parade of horribles or whatever, you know, actually happened one month ago, not five years ago, not this happened to our country in in Mm -hmm. Ev. But one month ago, in the building, in the chamber that they're sitting in. So I, 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 I look. I'm, I'm not optimistic about how this trial is going to come out. I mean, I suppose if if, if you were to spin a scenario, you you would start with the way that uh, the the senators are offended by how how weak the defense of, of Donald Trump was. I mean, I think that's also something we saw that he really has no substantive defense and, and he's, and he's almost going through the motions. I thought, I thought Richard Burr's comments afterwards, now mm-hmm. he's, he's leaving and he, he voted, uh, you know, with the other Republicans, but he said, I ain't no lawyer, but I know enough to know that was some bad stuff. So you know that they're going, this is insulting to us. You've insulted our intelligence and who, so who knows where this is going to go. Now I really wrestle with the same question of, you know, are you, are you uh, bearish or bullish on America? Because I, I have two completely different takes on all of this, which is that um, somebody said to me, you know, does the Republican Party know that it's destroying itself by doing this? And I pushed back and I said, well, maybe they don't know that because they think they're doing great. They came right. close in the presidential election. They think they did. Uh, they gained seats in the in the uh, uh, in, in the House of Representatives, uh, Senate, uh, you know, evenly balanced. Uh, they think that this is OK, which suggests that. Republican Party can engage in this kind of behavior and really not pay a price, which is a tremendous indictment about our political system. I think that's such an important point, Charlie, and mm-hmm. I, I make this point a lot to my liberal friends, moderate friends, let's say non-Republican or former Republican, non-former Republican friends, who are very much in that mode of, don't they understand it's in their own self-interest to to, to stop this? And I think no. there's some no. truth to that, and mm-hmm. certainly in the medium longer term. Uh, maybe enlightened self-interest, I think Tuckville called it, you know, where uh, you look, see above them, the, the sort of very short-term, immediate, uh, crass self-interest. But I, they do not understand the degree to which everyone they know, our liberal friends, you know, just thinks they've gone crazy and can you believe it? Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Michigan mm-hmm. uh, state mm-hmm. Senate leader. But they sit there, they look around them, they picked up a dozen seats in the House they happen to lose the Senate in a slightly, they think, in a sort of flukish way with the Georgia results, with Trump screwing everything up, but he's going to be gone. So there's still 50-50 in the Senate. I think they have 27 governorships, more state legislative chambers than the Democrats. They kind of control more redistricting than the Democrats. Um, yeah. They've got a lot of friendly judges, they think, on the court, but they're by Trump. I don't know how they'll end up. I hope they end up judging, you know, honestly, judicially, but they, you know, they voted for those judges if you're a senator. 
Um, and so they're kind of thinking, well, I'll probably get the house back in 2022. Yeah. Not mm-hmm. hard to tell. 2024, 50, 50, uh, not so bad, not so bad, you know? And so I, I really agree that they don't see the incentives, the political future, the way a lot of outside observers do, especially outside observers in the media and sort of center left kind of uh, good government world. I'm not saying the Republicans are right. I'm not saying the outside observers are right. I think it's kind of unknowable, but, but they're not crazy, the Republicans, if you want to put it this way, to think, you know, not to be not to think it's so obviously in their interest to break with Trump. They think they can straddle the whole thing. They can ride both horses at once. They can have a little wackiness with Marcia Taylor Greene. They can have Liz Cheney as the number three person in the House. And they can continue. They can do a little better when Trump proceeds a bit in 2022 in terms of the candidates who get nominated. And they just have to kind of manage this difficult situation for a while and uh, keep going till 2024. That is their attitude. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly right. And of course, you know, our politics is on a, is on a knife's edge. And so, what if? And I'm doing this as a what if. I'm not predicting. I mean, what what if the um, the the pandemic uh, does not go away? Uh, what if uh, the 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 vaccine rollout uh, has more problems or is overwhelmed by the new variants? What if the economy begins to overheat or stutters? Um, all of those things, you know, that that's why, I mean, if Joe, if Joe Biden fails, I'm thinks, think what he's opening the door for, for a return uh, to. Um, and totally. of course, they're, I mean, I, it's funny they're counting on the left overreach as well. And, and, yeah, you know, I think the Biden success or failure is one of the biggest variables yeah. that people aren't focused on. You and yeah. I have been on so many uh, conference calls, Zoom calls mm-hmm. and the meetings and, you know, future of the Republican Party, future of conservatives, a lot of them quite interesting, intelligent people, of course. Um, but one thing it's never meant, I mean, they treat it as if this is sort of a internal debate among Republicans and conservatives and the future will be decided by these debates or whatever. And they, as if there are no exogenous variables that matter. And I very, very much agree that Biden's success or failure is a huge factor here. If Biden succeeds, then there's a case for decent Republicans to say, look, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're looking crazy. He's doing pretty well. Um, and we need to change our, our ways just politically. And that happens in, in American history, of course, when parties are losing. If Biden fails, even if it's not his own fault, it just, you know, it gets unlucky with the economic cycle or whatever, mm-hmm. or, or the virus mutations and so forth, you know, the variants. I mean, then I think you get a, such a uh, boost for craziness and extremism on the Republican side, probably on the Democratic side too. And then you're really in a nightmare situation. So actually, I mean, it really is kind of important that Joe Biden, I think, be a reasonably successful president. I don't know what successful means exactly, but I would just say getting the virus under control, getting the economy going, no major scandals, a sense of you may not agree with it, you may want to vote for his opponent in 2024, but a kind of pretty competent, pretty uh, um, responsible attempt at governance. I, I and actually think it, it is relatively simple. I think it does come down to the pandemic and the economy, and and they seem to understand that. At least, at least yeah. that's what I'm getting from them is that they understand that um, the process is less important than the results, and that they have to go big. They have to push this out. Um, if they send you know these checks out and you know accomplish all of this, yes, uh, fiscal conservatives will object to it. But you know the harsh cold reality is that people like getting money. <laughs> They, they do. And and if, in fact, uh, jobs come back and people go back to their lives, uh, there could be a huge burst of optimism. Uh, but we, we just don't know. It's it's it, it's impossible. Some of it's in, the, in his control and some of it's not in his control. So given the fact, and I completely agree with you, 
that you know that our short-term political future really does depend um, on on whether or not Joe Biden succeeds. How's he doing so far? What is what is your what's your report card? You've watched this from inside the White House, outside the White House. What's what's your you got a report card yet? Yeah, very uh, yeah, incomplete report card. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess maybe we can close with this uh, incomplete thought. I mean, yeah, I, I think um, I think it's doing pretty well. I mean, look, there are things I would do slightly differently at times when I thought the message was a little off or individual uh, members of the administration said things that I wouldn't have quite said. But no, generally speaking, I do very much agree that they understand what matters he's doing. <clears throat> you know, I'm not a Democrat or I haven't been a Democrat and I don't have a great feel for what he feels he has to do to keep certain parts of the party just, you know, from being too restive. And I, you know, I remember this in the old days with Reagan there, the, the Democrats didn't sort of understand certain things that Reagan had to do just because his party was his party, even though they didn't end up mattering that much. And I, I, I'm hopeful that that'll end up being the case. I talked with some foreign policy expert uh, yesterday who's pretty worried about the world, not because of Biden, just because he thinks people are just generally underestimating all the dangers out there. And that that's the kind of thing where he's pretty hopeful that the Biden people have a grip on this, but he's worried that they're not quite, you know, so there's plenty to worry about, but I would say Biden's doing pretty well, better than I would have expected, better than I think most of us would have expected uh, six months ago, but I think that most of us would have expected on November 3rd or November 7th when he was declared the winner in terms of the mm-hmm. uh, coherence of the big policies, uh, the quality of the cabinet, it looks like, um, the focus on first things first for all the executive orders, people on the, you know, mm-hmm. Republicans are complaining about most of that stuff is pretty, is not huge. And he seems to be focusing on the big stuff. You know, I actually spoke to a very, 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 very conservative friend who had actually very reluctantly voted for Biden because, uh, they were so disgusted by Donald Trump and, uh, I asked them the same question and they said, you know, I'm actually kind of proud of the guy. I mean, actually, wow, I'm, I'm surprised how competent he is, how fast he's moving. And so, so even though there's this big drumbeat, like, what do you think now since he's doing all these things? No, you know what? It's the contrast between Trump is so dramatic. It is so significant. And he seems to be so focused on actually doing the job. It's uh I still haven't gotten quite over that. I have, I have, I have to admit, I'm going to go back to disagreeing with him, but I'm, I, I agree. I was, I was impressed. And I was, I was impressed that, that, uh, this conservative voter also felt the same way. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, that's a good, to- that's a good thing to close on. We should close it on is. a big note. <laughs> Bill Crystal, thank you for joining us once again on the podcast. Obviously it is going to be a tremendously interesting and consequential week and we appreciate it. Thanks, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.